Warning, the following show is intended for mature audiences. Viewer discretion is advised. Welcome, Friday, May 21st, 2021. Uh, A lot going on. We have a lot on real estate this week. Uh, A lot with the lumber prices. Lumber prices are dropping. How long can we expect this to go for? We're going to be going over that. We're going to be going over why they're dropping, what's causing all this. Um, how the housing shortage is hurting and how people are predicting this housing shortage is going to last for quite a few years. Some people are saying decades. So we're going to go over like how that plays out and what the demographics are. We're going to be talking about how to deal with multiple offer situations. A lot of people feel like just take the highest offer. Well, that's not always the case. So we're going to share that with you guys. And then, uh, some a few things on politics, some things that Governor Abbott is doing here in Texas. Uh, we have employment data. So, I mean, a lot, a lot going on. And uh, the world is on fire. Yes. But tomorrow is Mr. John Barr's birthday. Yeah, buddy. So we're my day. Feel, else's. feel free to come join us celebrating at Chuck E. Cheese. Um, it's, uh, his <laughs> bro, I, no? if I don't get, if you don't put on the giant mouse costume, I'm going to be very disappointed. Yeah. So, well, I mean, now it would work right with the whole mask and everything. It's like, look, I'm being socially conscious, protecting everybody. I'm wearing a big ass face mask. <laughs> giant <laughs> cheese head. <laughs> but, uh, with that being said, I am your host, John Barbarian with me as always is Mr. John Barr. How's it going, sir? Good, good. week? Good, good week. Excited good week. for your birthday? Yes. Yeah. Stop messing with that. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm excited for it. It's always a good time oh. of year. It's always May time, too. I always like May. May's a good month. Or it gets uh, like you, two into summertime. No, yeah. Everything's very green. You get some rain in there to like make green things up. And right now, recently, we've gotten a lot of rain here. Yeah. And things are very green. Um, and green's my favorite color. And it's actually been a very mild May, too, as far as, like, weather-wise. Like, we've had several days. Like, I think yesterday it only topped out at, like, 85 or something like that. Yeah. And the humidity was lower in the afternoon. I was like, man, I was cruising around with the windows down. I was like, nice. But then I got the little uh, app on your watch that tells you about the decibels and stuff like that. So I'm rolling around with my windows down, the, the podcast up, and it's, like, constantly vibrating. I'm like, damn. Maybe I shouldn't drop the windows down, the audio up. Oh, why? It hurts your ears? Well, no, it's saying like it warns you like any like noise above like 90 decibels or 80 decibels for long periods of time like causes hearing damage and hearing loss. And like if you're driving on the highway with your windows down, it's way too loud for you damage your ears if you're driving down the road. You don't realize it though because it's not, doesn't seem that loud. I do it all the time, but now like you're consciously aware, I'm like, oh. Oh, and especially now you're getting into your old age that you got to take I care know, of your ears. I know. I'm 32 <laughs> and I'm starting to care Fucking about myself. Old ass over here worrying about his ear with the windows down. How old are you? Exactly. Well, it doesn't mean that I'm complaining about the window being down. And don't even start, about, my don't decibels. even start about complaining and stuff my like that goodness. about health issues uh, and stuff. My ears. Anyway. We have, like I said, uh, a lot going on, so let's just jump right into it, and we're going to start with this article about April housing starts drop 13% from March. So skyrocketing lumber prices, appliances, and other building materials continue to handcuff new housing starts all over the country. So for those of you that don't know, housing starts is pretty much new construction. 
Supply chain constraints are holding back a housing market that should otherwise be picking up speed given the strong demand for buying fueled by an improving job market and low mortgage rates. Even with these challenges, there are roughly 640,000 new homes under construction right now, a helpful addition to low supply levels. Mike Fratantoni, uh, mortgage. Should you be able to pronounce that? Huh? Fratantoni. Why with the hands? What's with the hands? That's what, that's, what, that's what you do. You're Italian. Okay, like, but yeah. That, that's, uh, what are these uh, softies called? That's discriminating? What are you discriminating? You're being racist towards no, Italians? No, I'm just saying like that is a... Uh, yeah. Stereotype? Proud. There you go. Stereotype. That's the word. Anyway, he's from the Mortgage Bankers Association's chief economist. So some builders are reporting changed uh, practices in response to the challenges, including limiting the sales of custom homes and capping volumes so as to not burn through their existing inventory of materials. And in an environment where starting construction on a home might be the most difficult step in the process, the share of homes authorized but not yet started surged to a highest level recorded since data collection began in 99. A sign that builders are waiting for some sales, certainly before committing to put hammer to nail. So builders are ready to go. They, they're ready to build. They're ready to have at it. The issue that they're facing is the high lumber prices. And last week, like we talked about, the regulations. I'm talking about how $94,000 from a house that sells at uh, $400,000 $94,000 of that goes to regulations and pretty much the city uh, government and all the stuff that they're putting on them. So that's a huge, huge percentage, mm-hmm. right? That's a huge percentage that's going. And that's why a lot of them, you add that, then you add lumber prices been through the roof. Like, Well, it's not uh, even prices <laughs> through the roof. Like you said here, like they're, uh, they're not starting because they don't want to burn through their supply of materials. So it's one of those that it's like, hey, like we could build just fine. Like even the cost doesn't seem like the cost sucks, but it's one of the things like we can't get the massive amount of lumber we need. I can't go to Home Depot and say, hey, I need 700 pallets of plywood. Like, yeah, we're Home Depot. We only have like five on stock at right. a time. Um, so like the, the prices may be all well and good, but it's also one of the things that's like, hey, we could absorb the cost of the prices, but it's like we can't get the material. To build, like, so we have these yards. I know there's a project down, downtown. Um, you haven't probably been down, been down there in a while, but uh, right as you're taking the curve to head towards, like, the Pearl right before, uh, they're doing a big renovation project. Tore a big old building down. They're building a whole misuse building. Yep, there's a I tower crane there. And if you look off the side of it, I mean, they have their own lumber yard, it looks like, that they just have so much material stacked up, ready to go. Uh, you think they have some security around that? Uh, yeah, they definitely have security <laughs> around that. Uh, I got that I like, plywood. <laughs> I was like, man, there's probably like 500 grand just of materials sitting right there. Yeah. But that, that was the thing. I, I drove by. I was like, yeah, that's what they did is when they could, when they could get their hands on the material, they bought as much as they could. And they got it all wrapped up, shrink-wrapped, uh, tarped over, and just sitting there off to the side in this one corner of their project. And it's just loaded with material. That's insane. Yeah, I mean, it's just, and it's, honestly, we thought about it too um, last year when we were getting going with our constructions and all those things that we looked at possibly getting a warehouse space and, you know, buying stuff and storing it there because we saw this coming. It's just, 
at the time, too many houses. It, it just it was a lot of money that we had to put up. The warehouse space was kind of awkward to get to and everything. We I don't know. Maybe we didn't anticipate it getting this bad. Um, but the next article that rolls right into this is Lumber Futures uh, deepens to 27%. So lumber contract for July delivery fell $63 on Tuesday. The maximum permitted by Chicago Mercantile Exchange with the price sinking to $1,264 per 1,000 board feet. So keep in mind that that is... The highest it hit was on May 10th at 1733 and it went down to 1264. It actually had gone down to 1201 at some point. And um and what's very interesting with this though is that the reason it didn't go down any lower is because the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, they actually have limits on how much a price of um something can drop of in a day. Assets like that can drop. Yeah. So it hit the limit and they stopped selling. But that didn't mean that there were more people wanting to sell. There were a lot of people that were trying to sell. Well, it's a lot of times. And like you're they couldn't. I mean, these kind of exchanges, they're playing with paper. That's all they're playing with. It's like they're not playing with real values of real delivery material. So it's like people are freaking out, wanting to panic sell, yeah. but they don't want those prices to drop because that can really screw things up long term for, I mean, this is just stock markets. All these futures are and stuff like that. It's not real like Home Depot placing an order somewhere saying this. It's like no, but it, it does that influence and affect the, it does. the prices it does. and it was how not, people I, sell. I wouldn't say it's a one-to-one ratio kind of thing. No, um, of course. So that's where yeah. they, I think that's why they stop it. It's like, hey, we this will start really screwing things up. Right. In the real world of like delivery of the physical material, if we don't stop this thing from continuing just to fall. Right. Because I mean, I think they saw that with uh, gas prices last year when they went, the delivery contracts went negative. Where it's like, can't give me money to give you oil, kind of, or give, I can't give you a barrel of oil and $75 for that thing. Yeah. Um, to where like that didn't go negative. Uh, but that's why I think they have those like stop falls where it's like, you have well, to because they're actually talking about real goods that are being consumed by the the economy that's like you can't let that just people speculate and tank the price and now <laughs> you know yeah. it, it really messes up supply chains and messes up well, a lot of things said, that's, these are derivative markets it's all yeah. they are it's like it's, yep. uh, it's how would you explain the derivative i mean it's a derivative of the physical delivery so these are real contracts that somebody eventually will have to execute and right. buy the actual material but these are people in the future just playing with like well i think the future of this contract is going to be worth x but they by the time it could be 1200 a day but by the time the contract actually delivers it's actually all the way back up to 1500 right. and people play with leverage and do all kinds of stuff and that's how these things can get so screwy i mean that's one of the biggest things that hit the mortgage market and caused a liquidity crisis in uh 2008 yeah for sure yeah it's the derivatives well what was worse in 2008 it was a derivative of the derivative of a derivative it was like seven levels deep it got to a point where it's like just pure speculation yeah and but it was leveraged so much that the speculation on this end completely tanked it on this one yep you know so but the article keeps going as saying while the drop suggests market weakness with traders saying the preceding rally went too high Builders who would need to buy wood for summer projects are still paying top dollar due to strong demand and tight supplies at sawmills. Higher costs and limited availability of building materials have halted some projects, according to the National Association of Home Builders. So demand for wood remains robust amongst retailers, including Home Depot, which they're saying they're having a tough time keeping their shelves stocked. 
we compare it to a storm environment where literally as soon as you bring it in, it's selling, said the Home Depot chief uh, CFO. We're really just focused on making sure that we stay in stock and making sure that we have the appropriate level of staff to serve our customers. The market will go where it goes. The mills have this order file where they've sold the physical production through the middle of June, uh, says uh, Capital Strategist, Chief Executive Officer of Ohio, based, whatever, some guy. Uh, they don't have... Um, they don't have to come to the open market here and take counter offers on their physical cash or at least two to three weeks. So while the futures are leading the way down, uh, this doesn't expect cash price of immediate available lumber to likely follow until mid-June at the earliest since demand for builders remains strong. So even though that price dropped, they're not expecting those to be settled and for that to reflect lumber until at least middle of June. So we might see, you know, in the summertime, prices might come down a little bit. Uh, futures are getting driven down right now by computerized trading and other platforms not related to physical products. So it may end up going lower than the real market needs to go. The mills know there's a lot more buying than needs to happen. So <laughs> there's a lot more buying that needs to happen. That's, oh, wow. uh, that's, that's interesting, right? When you hear all the supply issues that we have, it's like, it seems like we need even more buying. He expects the cash market will fall to a new base level in June and trigger more buying while futures could head back up by August. Leonard Leonard said he has seen the, uh, this pattern repeat in his 35 years of trading in the market. The market is digesting some very high levels right now. I don't know if we'll make a new high, but I think we'll take a shot. We'll take a shot at it again. So what does it all mean? Pretty much that, that the prices are coming down. It's going to take a, um, a probably until mid June for that to reflect actual lumber prices. And even then, when that does reflect, they're saying that they're going to see even a bigger demand from people coming in, taking advantage of these low prices because they're going to feel like it's going to go back up, right? It's a it's a sale, so they're saying it's gonna people are going to go and pretty much by August the prices of lumber Drive is going to right back up, right? And then that kind of ties in to this next article where lumber futures swing ten percent in wild session, so price stifled demand. Period. There's no other question about it. About it, Robin Cross, a commodities broker at StoneX, said, um, "It's not like I have a whole bunch of guys calling and selling. Yeah, calling and selling. What's really happening is guys bought high-priced inventory and they're afraid to add to it. No one wants to be left holding the $1,700 bag. So that's the difference, I guess, between like when we see these uh, upticks in Bitcoin and all this speculation. That's more." your everyday unsophisticated investor, like a lot of, you know, these people that are following Elon Musk and buying whatever he tweets, people that buy lumber futures and, and commodities, not all of them are novice investors. The majority of people are, you know, a little bit smarter. They, well, it's also they, like, 
I wouldn't even know where, like, I mean, I know where to begin, but it's one of the things I couldn't go right now and buy a lumber future contract. Mm -hmm. Like, it would take some research to get down that rabbit hole to figure out, like, to play in that space. Or you don't understand it, but you could go and buy it. Yeah, I could could go buy it. It's not as sexy as Bitcoin. Yeah, it's one thing, like, I couldn't get on Robinhood app and say, where do I go to buy a futures contract? Like, I I wouldn't know immediately where to go. So it's not somebody that, uh, like, that's buying, like, Bitcoin or Dogecoin or Tesla or something very mainstream. Like you can't go buy, you could probably buy a ETF or something that trades in the future market of that. Yeah. But you yourself could not go buy a futures contract. Yeah. So that you would be giving your money to somebody that's going and doing that on your behalf and taking their cut out of the deal. Uh, but that's just one of those that it, it, I wouldn't know where to go. So these people are somewhat sophisticated, but they still do make mistakes because greed does drive. A lot of these things are saying like, oh, it's going up, so I'm going to keep going higher and higher and sell it to somebody else. And, and another thing that I've seen uh, where this article got interesting is like he says, he says, um, I do believe that in the market, we are going to see a dead cat bounce. So what a dead cat bounce is, a, it's more, it's a technical analysis term. So it's pretty much like the market shot up and it comes down fast, hits, bot- it hits a, a low bounces it comes up but it doesn't go as high as the previous high and then it comes much lower why is it gonna be a cat why is it gonna be dead apparently because if it bounces off the floor that hard i'm sure it's gonna die (laughs) i don't think a dead cat cat is gonna bounce off the floor and still be fine but um but they call it the dead cat bounce so pretty much that's what they're saying they're saying it hit the low of uh 1201 and they're saying now it's going back up typically It'll go up probably about halfway, maybe a little bit more, but it won't hit the last high. And then when it comes back down, it's going to go back down in a, in a big way, supposedly. So that's what this guy is predicting. So while the rules of uh, reaching limit down price vary by asset class, uh, reaching that level in commodity markets can be especially stressful for traders who are unable to sell their position because trading of an exchange halted soon as the limit down price met. So we talked about what limit down is. They put a cap to make sure it doesn't get out of control. Um, but the thing I th- I think is uh, something that I wanted to discuss more about in this topic is you have the lumber prices are falling and all of this. You have demand that's going up. You have a lot of people that, you know, you, you start thinking, okay, what can cause lumber prices to come back down? What I think is we have seen, and we're going to cover that later, but how many states are getting rid of the $300 um, stimulus. stimulus, that extra $300 bump? So we're starting to see that. We're starting to see employment numbers go even higher where more jobs are becoming available. We're starting to see even more companies are starting to raise their minimum wage and everything. They're starting to raise how much they pay so they can become more competitive so they can get the workforce. So I think as you start seeing more people going back to work, more people getting, um, getting jobs and everything, I think the mills are going to start picking up again. Yeah. When we start seeing the mills picking up, because it's not like we have a shortage well, it's, of it's, trees. It's that it's, it's the same thing. Like what's going to do it. It's like, there's only two things. There's less demand or more supply. It's the only way prices are going to come down. So that you're talking about I, no, more I understand. supply. Yeah. Because less demand, I don't see, right? And yeah. we're going to cover uh, the chances of less demand or more, but I don't see less demand being uh, coming anytime soon. So it's got to be more supply. So as we see lumber prices, and I don't think it's going to go back down to pre-pandemic level. No. So 
This time last year, I was looking. I think the lumber futures were trading at like 400. Right now, they're at 1300. You know, they went up to 1700. So 400 to 1700, like, holy crap. I don't think it's going to go down to 400. It might go down to probably like 800, maybe, mm -hmm. you know, around there because the demand is still going to be high. Yeah. And they're going to need that kind of demand and that price to sustain, I think, the new jobs that they need to hire at a higher wage to get people back into well, that's the mills. Said, that's what we've talked about. It's like the overall inflation thing. They, they couldn't get the $15 an hour minimum wage pass thing, but yeah. it's also like there's such a supply gap and people aren't returning to work that it's like the economy is being forced to pay those wages in these certain industries that are in massively high demand. And and we're seeing that across the board. And that's construct, I mean, construction. Yeah. That's, uh, I mean, to the, the lumber mills. Yeah. Uh, and I know like... The fast food restaurants are having a hard time because they're competing with the $300 amount because they are on the lower end of the spectrum, lower skilled uh, jobs. And those extra $300 plus state and benefits can actually pay pretty decently. Yeah. So that's because I know I think here in Texas, it's like a max $600 that you can get per week, what they pay. And then the extra $300, so they get $900 a week if they're on the maximum unemployment benefits. But it, that's I guess, a lot. yeah, but it also depends on the previous income level. It's not you have file unemployment and you get $600 based on what your previous income was. Uh, yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, I, I think these are things that are definitely affecting the job market. They're definitely affecting uh, lumber prices, home prices, everything. But as we see more people going back to work, we're seeing the wages come up to meet the inflation that we're seeing everywhere, right? In food and living and everything. It's, I don't think it's going to be something that, uh, People, just because they're going to be getting paid more, doesn't mean they're actually making more because now that extra income they're getting paid is being eaten up by the inflation that we're seeing, right? But it's going to stable off the market. I think a little bit more where people were so unemployed, inflation took off. Now people getting employed is going to catch up a little bit with inflation and might even out a little bit these crazy swings and stuff like that. Oh. Do you agree with that? I mean, what do you think? I mean, I, I, I do agree. It's it just... Crazy market. There's massive demand. Yeah. Um. And there's all kinds. Of, I mean, anytime after a major disruption like something like this, any kind of black swan event, it, you're gonna have all kinds of areas of the economy that's broken, and people are people are making more money, people are losing money, and like the economy's trying to, or those supply chains and everything are trying to stabilize. Like, okay, where is everything at? Where is my supply? Where is my demand? Where is my workforce? What things have changed? How do I do this? So the prices are just volatile all over the place. So until you can find that perfect equilibrium between supply and demand at some points you're gonna have too much supply sometimes you have too much demand and things are going all over the place and when you talk at something like lumber between the time i mean the person plants the tree to us buying a two by four and installing it to the person buying the home i'd say that's when the lifestyle the life cycle of that two by four is kind of done as like that's a there's a lot of people touch that two by four by the time it gets to that house and that house is sold right. and then it's held on to for a couple of years till they sell it again. So, I mean, there's a lot of people that touch that. So I think there's just a lot of disruption in the supply chains right now. And that's what's Matt. And like we talked about yesterday, like who last week. So like who is making this money? And I think it's everybody everywhere along the entire chain, because things are so volatile right now that you haven't had that good economic, uh, supply and demand of really things kind of settling down and, um, evening out over time. Like we'll see. So, 
right. You want to touch that next article? Well, so the other one, uh, a lumber executive expects vol- volatility elevated prices to last for the foreseeable future. So kind of the caveat to yours. I mean, that's what they said. Yours is prices drop, but they were like massively high. But they said they're going to drop, but they're still going to stay drastically elevated to where they were. Because I mean, even at 1200 that's three times higher than what it was a year ago. Um, so a lumber, and this is a guy that actually owns a uh, wholesale business. And so a lumber industry veteran told CNBC on Thursday he expects the hot lumber market to persist at least for a few more months, keeping both sides, uh, both price and volatility elevated. Our belief is that the cycle that we're currently in is here for the foreseeable future, said Kyle Little, chief operating officer at Sherwood Lumber, a privately held New York-based wholesale distributor. So nobody knows more about like these prices than a wholesale distributor because they're the ones that are buying it from the mills, taking it, and then putting it to giving it to Home Depot and their big distributors and stuff like people that can consume that much inventory. Little said his view is informed by research his company conducted late last year analyzing seven previous bullish cycles in lumber over the past 35 years. So you have an in, somebody that should know these things. He's not a trader in some Wall Street firm or Chicago-based firm. It's like He's like, no, he's a CFO for a – or COO for a – wholesale distributor so they see this thing they know what this stuff is they they can study these cycles from their real perspective not just studying paper trends right. so he sees it staying for the foreseeable future of all the cycles that they've studied over the last 35 years so no i mean i think that's definitely i agree i mean it's just one of those things and we're going to talk about uh what's going to keep causing this demand and these high prices so first of all let's hit this article that I had that it's three reasons why the housing shortage will last for years. So this is a actual report done by Goldman Sachs and all of the articles that we're covering and everything is going to be on our website after the live is over. So if you, I strongly recommend that you go read these yourself, look through them because we're giving you a summary of the articles, but some of these articles are pretty in depth. They have some really cool charts, a lot of great information. So make sure you go check those out afterwards. Um, but supply for homes can't keep up with demand. At a point when the country badly needs more houses, housing starts fell, and they're saying 9%, but this was a little bit, the, their report was a little bit older, so it was like, what, 14%, I think I said, 13-something, in April, and Goldman Sachs doesn't see the cavalry arriving soon. A May 2nd note from Goldman's Ronnie Walker found yeah, found that new home sales and housing starts have reached their highest level since 06. And housing supply is at its lowest level since the 70s. But as demand remains high, little is being done and can be done to fix the low supply. The resulting picture is one of a persistent supply-demand imbalance in the years ahead. So the reason why... um. Why have to? <laughs> Sometimes their grammar is funny. Uh, so the reason for this is that they're saying with millennials aging into a home buying time of life, the availability of construction materials and workers or lack thereof, and even foreclosures that may hit the housing market. So the three areas that they see that's going to be affecting demand is going to be the large millennial population and the lack of workers and then, you know, when forbearances are over and all of these are over, the rise in foreclosures. So, you're, and what does this mean, though? What's very important with this is 
when they talk about foreclosures, they're not talking about a supply of foreclosures hitting the market. They're talking about a lack of supply of foreclosures hitting the market, where a lot of people think that foreclosures are going to come in. They're saying there's no reasons why they will. These houses have a tremendous amount of equity. As we see wages go up and employment come back, they're going to be able to get jobs to take care of their mortgages. So a lot of these people are not going to need to sell. They're going to be able to do loan modifications. They're going to be able to do things to keep their home. Well, and the stuff we've talked about and like predicted or like our guess what was going to happen. It's like people are waiting for the foreclosures. I'm like, I wouldn't be waiting for a massive wind of foreclosures. It's like the market can absorb whatever foreclosures do come about. And these people like the banks learned that they can't dump inventory onto the market because that drives their, it starts a self-fulfilling cycle all the way down of all their assets. So like, they're going to trickle them on. They're going to try to do loan modifications they're, and they're, they're going to drag those out for a very long period of time before they finally foreclose on that house. And by the time they foreclose on the house, as like, I don't think an investor is going to be able to go in there and do anything about it because the mortgage had been in so far behind for so long. Cause like, when you like, we've seen it before. Like when you look at a mortgage statement, somebody foreclosure, like they may be only a month behind, like six months behind their payments, but it's insane how fast that mortgage balance goes the other direction. So like you're talking 30 years, usually if you're paying like your mortgage payment of like here in Texas, like 12, 13, 1400 bucks, only about like a hundred, 120 bucks is actually going to paying off that principal amount. Right. Most of it's going towards interest, but the problem with that is, is like if you stop making that payment, that interest compounds on top of the previous month's interest and the principal payment you weren't making, so that can make your mortgage go backwards. So if you talk with these people that have been in forbearance for over a year, year and a half now, those balances are huge. Yeah. And then they go, okay, well, we're going to try to put you in loan modification. They're going to do everything they can to try to keep them in that house. That entire time, it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger of as far as the amount that's owed towards the yeah. one thing you can do is either get a short sale or the bank's going to have to foreclose and you're going to have to do it through the REO market. Well, I mean, to that point, I think one of the things to keep in mind is one thing that I, I, I talked about, I think last episode or the one before is I truly believe that the mortgage is the asset nowadays because of the inflation, right? When inflation hits real estate, hard assets are will hold the best wealth because you can't print them right they're not uh they're not fake they're not they're there it's a limited supply there's only so much land there's only so much houses you know so it's like those are the things that absorb the majority and that's what we're seeing is these acid bubbles and everything so what i more predict is that you're gonna see loan modifications and i agree with their point because it's just gonna be people wages keep going up now because people are needing to keep up with this this type of inflation so now you're getting paid more where now that mortgage that you got to take even with a loan mod put in place is not going to be that crazy in comparison now what you're getting paid for your new wages and everything and job increases and everything like i just don't see that that mortgage is going to become as troubling as it was pre-pandemic level right yeah. because we're seeing all this creep up and keep up so I don't think, you know, I, I was uh, recently asked a question by somebody in our text community that he was saying, you know, how do you market to these foreclosures and stuff like that? And I was like, well, you got to understand when you're buying foreclosures, when you're buying properties, you're buying distress, whether the house or the homeowner, somebody needs to be distressed to sell to an investor at a discount. 
where's the distress in the foreclosure market right now? You understand? Like, unless somebody has an actual distress that they need to sell really fast, something happened. Yeah. Foreclosure isn't enough of a, a distress at this moment, you know? And I think I, I foresee definitely the government, Fannie and Freddie stepping in and everybody giving these banks incentives to do well, these I loan mean, we modifications. Had so, we had somebody comment on one of our videos, uh, recently about the bidding wars and stuff like that Teresa, i don't know if i want to jump in and get into these bidding wars so i'm just gonna wait and right. they asked about like is, am i right in my assumption and my response was it's like well one you can't be looking at a house as an asset because it's not and that's what you think i don't want to overpay for an asset it's like well, we're using the wrong term it's not an asset it's a liability until you sell that thing in the future it's like you shouldn't be buying a house if you don't plan on staying in it for at least five years because it's like but and i use the point it's like but these bidding wars have been around for a while. Like you look at other markets in Texas, like I've been hearing bidding wars coming out of Dallas for years to where the people that bought years ago are sitting very well off as far as equity because prices have gone up. People that bought in February, people that bought in March, like their houses are now worth more than what they did. Now, I'm not saying never bet uh, to bet on appreciating that it's going to be worth more, but it's one of those that you shouldn't be buying a house than looking at it from just a price standpoint and price alone. It should be more of a personal finance aspect. Like, can I afford to make that payment? Why are you buying this house? Not just, I want a house because I want a house. Like, no, I'm buying a house because I'm at a stage of life where like I need more space or I'm in a stable career and I can afford this based on my monthly payments. And the price does matter, but it's people are focusing on the wrong term. And I think that's one of the things that like these, all these bidding wars and all this stuff that they're talking about that uh, we are going to be in this for a period of time. And now, just to be clear, when you say the house is not an asset, you're talking about your homestead is not an yeah, asset. Yeah, you're buying for a homestead. That's right. what I said. Like, and I use that term. It's like if you're buying a house, you should be in. And that's where I, I think I put in that comment. It's like the difference between buying an investment and buying a homestead. If you're buying a homestead, it's not an asset. Like it's a big liability until you sell that thing in the future. And then it kind of converts to an asset from the equity you have built in it. Right. Uh, but that person, I think they were looking at it from completely the wrong way. Well, um, everybody wants to get a deal. That's what I see as the issue is like everybody, you know, I want a deal. I want a great deal. I want to, I'm like, I understand you want a deal, but you got to understand where the market is. Yeah. Where's the market? Because what right now doesn't seem like a deal in a month, two months, it is. Yeah. Right. No, it's like you, or yeah, over you, time, it you, will be. Yeah. If you bid on it, like we just sold one recently, like it to where like if you bid on this house in April or, or February when we bought it and you look at today's prices, you just gained $20,000. Like right. the prices have gone up that fast in that price point in that area drastically. Yeah. So, <clears throat> well, and then to, well, to was, keep okay. going with this article is like, he talked about the other issues is, uh, the rise of, of millennials. Right. So up until this point, baby boomers were the biggest generation. And that was a problem because the baby boomer generation peaked out. What was it? 2007, 2005 yeah, around there. Yeah is when they peaked out. What does that mean? Is that they peaked out, that means that they started, they hit that age of 50 years old, where after that part, uh, that age, they start spending less and less because then they kind of start realizing, hey, I'm getting old, I gotta plan for retirement, I gotta save some money. Well, kids I gotta, grow up, they move, they're not going on big vacations with them. Instead of taking a family of four or five on vacation, they're taking a vacation of two. Right, so, so they stopped spending as much, so they hit their peak. So we've been pretty much on a steady decline since then of spending power, and which is one. Uh, I was listening to an interview by Harvey Dent, Harvey Harry Dent. Dent, Harry Dent, Harvey Dent's the Two Face from Batman. 
Yes. So Harry Denton. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, Harvey just like, I know that name, but that's yeah, not who it is. Like, that two-faced friend. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not two-faced. But anyway. So you're, you're DC guys, what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, so um, Harry Dent, uh, local, uh, you're not local, but he's an economist, dem- demographer, demographic analyst. Demo- demographer. Demographer? I think it's a term. If it's not a term, it is now. So Point it. You're, you're lucky that you heard it here. Um, <laughs> but he started trends and everything, and he's looking at it, and he says uh, the same thing. He's like, look, because of this declining trend in baby boomers, the government has had to print money to keep the same spending that the baby boomers stopped doing pretty much. So they've had to print money to kind of well, keep up with that in a way. So that was his argument. Well, it was something too when he put it that way because I listened to the artic- article as well, or the podcast as well, and it did make sense. Like, yeah, because if all of a sudden a whole bunch of people quit spending and like you have this massive amount of debt, like our world, our credit creation stuff like that, it moves on credits and like it needs to create new credit, and yeah. then you have the generation between the baby boomers and the millennials, whatever X I think it is, Z, I don't know. Um, but that generation was much, much, much smaller during that that time span, yeah. and. Uh, that was one of the things that created or less, less spending. You got to, the money's got to come from somewhere to sustain everything. Otherwise, it's going to create a death spiral of deflation and declining asset prices that takes a while to stop, especially when you have a millennial edition on the back of it. It's like, we just need to bridge that gap for like 10 years to get through to the next one. And, that, and I think that, so that's, so they bridge the gap, which to me, I'm kind of torn. It's like, you're artificially bridging something that maybe should not have been bridged, right? Uh, you you yeah. should have let it drop. So then when the next generation comes up, we get any, another huge, you know, yeah. bull run pretty much. Well, they borrowed from the futures what they did. So exactly. Instead of getting a, so, big, uh, a big low and a big high, they kind of did this number. The so, thing is like that they're hoping that the future can repay that borrow from the, you know, in that moment. But anyway... But right now we have the millennials that are have surpassed the baby boom generation, not by a crazy amount, but they're they're a bigger generation, and we are they're about to start hitting their peak years by twenty thirty one. So the range of the millennials, and we've seen that everybody has their interpretation of the yeah. ranges. Yeah, what but is it? according to this, the range of millennials is from nineteen eighty one to ninety six. So all your nineteen eighty one babies by twenty thirty one. Are going to start hitting their peak that means that from now until then those people are still spending money yeah it's, it's growing it's growing it's right. growing and then by 31 that's when they are going to start hitting their peak and then you have another 15 years of more continual growth from the remaining millennials before they hit their fi- their 50s so in reality when you're looking at the population is bigger than the baby boom generation and they are all in their prime spending years. They have another 10 years before the first ones start hitting their peak years. It's like, there's, there's just no reason why this is going to slow down anytime soon. Well, and then I, I caught on an article. I mean, I didn't really, there wasn't a whole lot of substance to it, but you kind of read between the lines of what's going on with it. Is they talked about a family in Colorado, an elderly couple that owned a big home when they bought in 1996 that suited their family's needs. It's a five bedroom, huge house in Colorado somewhere. And the elderly couple now is, they're realizing is a two story home that after multiple knee replacements, the husband was like, I, this, these stairs, I can't do it anymore. Like, I'm gonna very quickly run out, and their house is paid off. Uh, they own it free and clear, so plenty of 
asset power right there. But then when they they were got very, it's like it was like they very quickly got disappointed in the current housing market and current state of the market of the fact that like the bidding wars, what products were out there, the price of those products of what they wanted, to where they just straight looked at it like. Well, you just decided we're modifying that we have the equity. So we're just going to take out a mortgage or a HELOC or something like that against some asset values because it said, we're just going to modify this house. It's like we're building a $40,000 elevator to the second story. So therefore, it's like now they're not even – so the baby boom generation isn't even moving on. So now because they've – we've talked about this to where – Be careful using that word with older people. Moving on. Oh my God. That's so grim. Uh, God. <laughs> Boom. Psh, jokes from John. Um, so, anyways, but like now that's even adding to it to where we kind of have talked about this the fact that such low inventory itself creates massive amounts of problems mm-hmm. to where like what does come on the market gets so massively overbid or well, quote unquote massively overbid that you have 20 people fighting over this and values go 10, 20, 30 thousand even some markets hundreds of thousands of dollars over asking prices that it's like an older person just like they need to downsize they want a different house they want to go somewhere they're like screw that like i do not have the energy that a millennial in their 30s or 40s has to go to 10 15 houses a day and have that constant bidding on it like we're trying to retire we're trying to relax like we'll just take out a second mortgage to do this so now that's not adding to the inventory or people that want to upgrade to where like we need a bigger house, but like I can't go buy a bigger house. I don't want to mess with that. But I got the money to where I can just take a mortgage and I can add a master suite to the house, so create a whole other bedroom. Th- using that information, do you think that we're gonna start seeing a rise, a, a much bigger rise in reverse mortgages then? Because I mean, if they don't plan on selling their house and they have a shit ton of equity, then and a lot of those people start hitting, you know, an income. Uh, hit now because as they age and they they you know they're maybe not working as much and all that and they still need some income like do you think they would do a you'll see a spike in reverse mortgages god i hope not uh because they're terrible products i'd rather see a second mortgage i completely uh, agree mortgage and take there, the there's a lot of people else with that. but you know yeah we see tom, tom Selig out there promoting reverse mortgages that broke my heart i had respect Who? for that guy Who? tom Selig. that is oh you didn't I grew up watching his movies with my grandpa. Uh, he's that guy with the mustache, the deep voice, and he used to do a lot of like uh, action kind of cop movies. Okay. Yeah, the original Longest Yard oh. uh, actor. Anyway. Okay. But anyways, but uh, I probably, <laughs> uh, you probably do start seeing some of that, but uh, it's also like somebody like that they have social security they have some retirements and if they own a house it's free and clear to where they might need to tap into that to get uh equity i mean i hope they find somebody that like because there's so many better ways to get money out of your house than a reverse mortgage but i'm sure you will just for the fact that there's just more people aging what if we started doing reverse mortgages like <laughs> no. we provide the loans to these we provide it like yeah. no, I don't want to get in that we regulatory them, mess. We pay them a month, you know, and I don't want to get in that we regulatory do what the mess. Gov- what the banks are doing, and then we steal the house from them. Wow, wow, <laughs> that's what reverse mortgages are. It well, screws it's over the old people. Yeah, that's why we don't like them. Is like it's a great the, business model for the banks. Yeah, terrible for the person a, doing they it. They make a lot of money, very profitable, loaded with fees. Or maybe like with this influx of demand, maybe new products do come out and it becomes it creates a better product. Because the idea of a reverse right. mortgage is a great thing to where it's like 
they give you a monthly income and there's a low interest rate attached to that, that takes slowly erodes the principle of it. But the problem with it is, is like, it's not that clear cut. No. Like banks, like there's, they're loaded with fees. They got surrender charges. They got extra stuff on top of that. That just, it's not what it pans out to be. And it get, turns out to be a very expensive way to tap into that equity when there's so much better ways to do it. Yeah. So, um, so with that, uh, I have this, uh, in local news, home buyers facing major obstacles in San Antonio real estate market. So the moment, that something pops up, it's gone, says uh, Chair McCulka, the chairman of SABOR, the San Antonio Board of Realtors. So even though sales are up 27% from a year ago, inventory is way down. There's over a 50% decrease from this time last year. So this time last year, we had 90, pretty much 9,500 homes uh, listings in the market. Right now, we have 4,300 listings in the market. I mean, that's just And what insane. is it? There's like 9,000 realtors or something like that, or 10,000 no, registered eight realtors? Like in San Antonio, in Sabor, in Sabor. In Sabor there's uh, six, over 16,000. Which is crazy, because it's yeah. like, I know I have two listings right now, so, and that's, there's probably multiple realtors that have multiple listings that only have 4,300 active listings. It's like- Woo, well, I mean, I talked a... about those stats uh, on an episode I did about why investors need to be getting their real estate license. But it, it's, you know, you go with the 80-20 rule with that. It, 20% of the agents have 80% of the listings. Well, and it's also, so, uh, not to get away from the article too far, but it's like when you have a hot market like this, they saw this in 2000 to 2005, 6, 7, to where anywhere that it seems like quick big money's being made, it's a massive draw of people that want to change careers yeah. to where everybody's getting the real estate list. I was on the phone with somebody last night and they're like, oh yeah, there's several people in our office that are trying to, that are working on getting the real estate license. Yep. And it's like adding to the 16,000 when there's only 4,000 and it's like, and well, I got two of them. It's like. Val is part of a, a walking moms, exercise moms, I don't know, a group like that, that a bunch of moms bring their kids and they go through parks and stuff. And she's constantly, she's coming and telling me, oh yes, Somebody from this group is talking about getting their license and this person's talking about getting their license because of how much freedom and flexibility they're going to have and make money and all this. And I'm like, you don't know what it <laughs> like, is. You don't know what you're getting <laughs> into. Like, but anyway, like getting, getting back to the article, like, um, so she's uh, Brian Livingston. Uh, so it's somebody that he's been trying for months to relocate his family from Houston. It's definitely heartbreaking when you see a home and you start thinking that it's going to be your dream house and then having it taken away from you. He estimates that he has been pouring through an average of 13 listings a day. Ugh. It's been three months of stress. We didn't know what to do because the market was so high and so hot. Uh, him and his wife and young son have been living in a hotel since selling their house as they tried to buy a home here. Oh my God. He finally made an offer on a far north side home that was accepted, but he had to outbid eight others. It was a miracle. We actually bought the house almost sight unseen. My wife hasn't seen the inside of the house. I'm seeing an increase in listings because we are in listing season, says... Um, Mikolka. And even even if those listings are high, 
one house that had that sold last year for six hundred and fifty thousand dollars went back on the market this year at eight hundred thousand dollars. So last year it sold for six hundred and fifty thousand, and now it's back on the market for eight hundred thousand. Mm. I'm sure it sold or at least that for that price or more. Average sale price in the area is about three hundred and thirty-three thousand dollars. Houses are also trying are staying on the market much shorter than a year ago, dropping from an average of 61 days down to 36 days. So I'm still shocked it's that high. What? Staying on the market for 36 days. Well, I mean, this is also Sabre data and who knows. But it's what also she's you do using. have people that just like list like trash uh, houses. I mean, she's for, using the average yeah, sell price. The like average who the hell sales uses dates. Average? Or, I mean they average days on market sorry we've never used the average days on market my because thing of is that, like it's so skewed we're like if you have a decent house at a decent price and you're not just way over a market or crap house like they're gone in days my thing is like what he says you know the level of competition the level of all this i i, I try to put myself in a home buyer's perspective and buying a house like it's not something that you know you trade up in a few months if you hate it or you get rid of it you're committing to a house, you're probably going to be there for a few yeah, years. Yeah, that's what I said. So like least... having to outbid and then even buy houses sight unseen, like that is just, to me, I'm like, holy crap. Well, we, like, ha we had a listing where somebody submitted an offer and it turned out to be one of the better offers, competing offers, and it came in so quick. Yeah. And uh, I, I reached out to the agent on the Friday, because I think we listened on Thursday, uh, on Saturday, just letting him know. It's like, hey, um, I didn't want to go too long without communication, saying, hey, just FYI, you guys are still in the running for the, the best price on this house. And then immediately within like 30 minutes, there was a showing schedule by that guy. Yep. I was like, you guys never even went to saw the house, did you? Well, like, it, it, it's like so you were you're just shooting it. blind offers and yeah. just saying like, we're willing to pay this much on anything. And just because... I mean, from a realtor perspective, you almost have to because, like, you can't take all these clients around showing them all these houses. Like, you'll spend days, 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 and hours driving around to show a house just to put offers together to be outbid to where, like, you almost have to go sight unseen. So we're seeing all these people, like, I, I was asked, what do you do then? How do you – you got to get in the market. First of all, you got to get in. If you're looking to buy a house, you got to be looking at houses like this guy's doing every single day. You cannot be like, oh, I, I want to buy a house in a few months, so I I'll start looking then. No, you got to get in right now. And you probably got to submit multiple offers to multiple houses at the same time because you just don't know what's going to happen when you're going to get it. So with that being said, I wanted to get into the next segment. Hey, podcast, thank you for listening. I hope you're enjoying the show. And if you want to get very exclusive insider tips and strategies that nobody else is getting, then you need to join our text community by texting podcast to 210-794-9898. That's 210-794-9898. Text the word podcast and you will start receiving insider information, things that are happening that we're realizing that we're implementing in real time that other people have no access to. So make sure you text us now. Now back to this show. This segment is uh, we, we wanted to talk about dealing with multiple offer situations. So when you are selling a property right now, you're flipping a house, you're putting your house on the market, and you're dealing with multiple offer situation. I, everybody always thinks that, well, that's easy, right? You go for the highest offer. Why not? No, it's not. 
it's not always the highest offer means that it's the one that you should be going for because there's a lot of things to consider. So with that, we're going to be sharing with you kind of like our experience that we have seen recently with pricing, getting multiple offers. We've dealt with this a bunch of times of making sure you're choosing the right offer. So we're going to go be, be going over terms, financing, all addendums, agent fees, everything that goes into considering an offer before you take one, because sometimes the highest could potentially be the worst offer. So with that being said, you are selling your home. You're getting multiple offers for this house, right? Let's talk about, first of all, the biggest thing that we look at is financing. So we're getting multiple offers for this house. We listed for 220. We're getting offers at 230, 240. What's the biggest difference when we get an offer from an FHA buyer versus a conventional buyer? What are we looking at? With well, those two. I mean, the two things we really look at, I mean, well, not the two things, it's just kind of things we look at is like, there is stricter guidelines around an FHA house from an appraisal standpoint that appraiser can come out there and force on the seller to make certain repairs or do certain things that a conventional wouldn't to where like you can have uh, say a lot of times it rains. I mean, uh, deferred maintenance where you get some wood rot on some trim, some fascia, some boards, some just this little things that are easy to fix that just kind of appear. Right. Well, an FHA appraiser can come in there and say, um, the house appraises for 220,000, but you got to fix these wood spots first or the house is uneligible. So you, the seller is like, well, I want you, you're already through this process. So now let me go spend the extra couple grand to fix all these things, get it painted, get it ready to go. So there's more of a strict guideline around those appraisers to get the house to qualify for the prices. Mm -hmm. Another thing that uh, with an FHA buyer is they, they can't pay more than what the house is worth kind of thing to where it's like, it has to appraise for that value. Even if it's low, there's a lot more restrictions on that person to get that mortgage of what it is. Right. And the reason you have FHA programs available is it was designed by the government to help assist people by stepping in and federally backing those mortgages, the banks to lend to less credit worthy or low money down buyers to where you only have to put three and a half percent down. There's programs out there that don't allow that allow even more than that uh, or less than that and or their credit scores low. But so the federal government's coming, we want housing, we want home ownership. It's good for the economy, but the banks don't want to lend to them or private banks because like they're too big of a credit risk for them and we're on the hook for that. We're not, we don't have a printing press like the government does. So the government's saying, we'll back that up to where if it does default, we'll step in and make sure the bank is whole for those people. So there's that buyer comes in, meaning they are in a less of a quality credit or cash position than somebody on a conventional loan. Right. So that's something we take into account as well. It's where you're coming with an FHA. So if I have equal terms based everything, same price, same everything, to where I will take a conventional over an FHA any day because they show they're a little more of a stable buyer. Because when you enter that contract, they're locking your house up anywhere from 30 to 45 days. And that is your risk as the seller that's saying, hey, the market's going up, it's going wherever it's going to need. And you're still paying the mortgage in hopes that that person does that. So you have to assume that risk. And that's part of like what it takes to be a good realtor is understanding these terms and not and being able to guide your clients because you do have a fiduciary responsibility to your client if you're on the list on both sides. Right. But if you're on the selling side, it's like, hey, let's evaluate these offers and let's really 
dig into them about the prices of the terms, the type of financing, and talk with the other agents to feel that person out. Because the second they sign that contract, you're in a partnership until that thing closes. And whatever they do, whatever they screw up, and if they lose that mortgage, you're at the loss because now you got to start that process over again. And I mean, that's like if it took a whole month and they fell through the very end, that's one more month of interest. That's one more month of taxes, one more month of insurance that you have to pay. Yep. So that is a risk that you take when it comes to terms and why you really need to read through those contracts. And it's not always just the financing aspect of the piece that is uh, the type of financing you really want to look through to see, are they asking for concessions? Do they need money and assistance to buy that house? Because a lot of times uh, what they do because FHA mortgages are more expensive for the end buyer when they're getting them than a conventional one. But there's some things that you can have the seller contribute to your your closing costs, you, like your appraisals, your loan origination, your PMI, your down payments and stuff can come from the seller and saying like, hey, I'm doing an FHA loan, but I need $5,000 in concessions to do this. And a year ago, that was commonplace. You'd find yeah. a lot of houses that where concessions were normal. You need an FHA buyer with concessions. And then because basically they mean like they could not afford that house by themselves. They needed you to help pay for their closing uh, costs. Before, before you keep going with concessions, going back to the financing, why it's important is, you know, like FHA, like you say, there's not much room, even though you list your house for 200 and let's say an FHA buyer submits an offer for 220 to be competitive. You got to really look at if it doesn't appraise, they actually can't pay 220, mm -hmm. right? Where now a conventional buyer will be able to. Because a conventional buyer, right, when we're going to get into the terms, but a conventional buyer has more flexibility than an FHA buyer. And then yep. you have your cash buyer, which of course is a cash buyer, right? So when you're looking at the financing, you want to look at if somebody's submitting an over-ask offer, like we're seeing right now in the market, you got to see, well, if it's an FHA buyer, what are the real chances that this house appraises? Because they can submit as high an offer as they want just to oh, be yeah. competitive. But if it doesn't appraise, guess what? You're, they take, can't, you're they, taking the risk that you're betting, and that is your risk of – because we had that exact example. We had right. people submit FHA offers at 240, and then we had somebody at a conventional at 230 waiving the inspection. We listed at 220. So we had the conversations about that. It's like – where do we think this is going to go? And some tricks that you can use is if you're on the selling side is to look at your market, pull your comps, because that's what an appraiser is going to do when he looks at this yeah. and look at houses that are further. So if you're in your active or still in your, um, haven't accepted a contract yet, you haven't entered that active option, look at the pending sales, right. see what they are within a half mile, mile of you. You got to kind of work like an appraisal. And that's why it's another part of being a good agent is understanding how the appraisal process works and seeing what it can work, where it might come in at. Cause at that point it's a, it's everybody's best guess of what's going to happen. You're assuming a level of risk. All of those listings, call the agents, buyer and seller, and see if you can ask them like, Hey, especially in the market right now where things are listed for a certain price and they usually sell higher. Yeah. Ask them like, what kind of terms did you accept? Was there a pre, was a conventional FHA? Try to get a price out of them if you can and see if there's contingency waiver involved in that to see is that house going to sell at a higher price because that is essentially what your appraiser is going to look at because they're further down the line than you are to where if they do the appraisal saying that one listed at 220 and we're listed at 220 and we have an FHA offer at 240, we're evaluated versus a 230 offer. It's like what did the 
other house go under contract for them. They're saying, oh, it's 235 with a contingency waiver and my house is updated compared to theirs. I'm more inclined to go to that 240 offer now because now that house has a better chance of appraising. Yeah. But if I call that same offer and it says, oh, we actually did 220, but we had to give concessions because of the repairs. So it's actually net contract values lower. Well, now I'm more inclined to take that 230 because it's a guaranteed offer versus the gamble going to that 240. So that's uh, that takes us into talking about how important are the terms when you're accepting multiple offers. So the financing is one of them because the biggest thing that financing affects are those terms, right? It's the terms. Are they going to waive the appraisal? FHA buyers cannot waive appraisals, right? Conventionals can because they can come in with the extra cash. Are they going to do a partial waive of the appraisal? You know, are they going to waive the whole appraisal? I mean, you got to see these things because all of that's going to matter. And then where else it's going to matter is when we start getting into concessions and stuff like that, when we're in this kind of hot market, I mean, we put that property on the market and they came back with their repair addendum. We looked at it, had a few items. Most of them were kind of stupid. They were like, no, 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 no. Yes. Okay. This is an issue. We are going to fix that, you know, and no to the rest. You can do that. But with yeah. FHA buyers, you really can't, you know, most of the time you can't, you know, they come back with something like that, you probably going to have to fix almost everything they come back with, even the stupid little things. You know what I mean? So it's like that risk of now you got to put in more money, you got to waste time. And then it's like, well, you can't back out now. You know what I mean? That's already eaten up so much time. I mean, now it's not as bad as before where going back on market was pretty bad. Yeah. Now going back on market, people just get excited. They get another opportunity. Yeah. But, you the know, prices might be higher now. Yeah, prices might be higher, but I did an episode a while back for um as a flipper when you're work how to work with agents. Because like you stated a few times already is if you're a good agent and we don't see many of those, especially when you have such a surplus of agents out there. I mean, we had somebody submit an offer on a property for, with FHA financing. We said, "Hey, it doesn't qualify for FHA because we haven't owned it for 90 days." And they didn't know what that meant. Oh, her rea the reaction was like, what does that mean? Like, why isn't the financing FHA? And I told her, like, well, we haven't known it long enough. And it's like, what does that have to do with anything? It's like, <laughs> there's a law that you can't, if the previous owner has not owned it for 90 days, you cannot contract with an FHA buyer. Because that's a thing. Like, a real thing. Like, and for you sure. should know that if you're representing yeah, an like, FHA buyer. Yeah, like you should really be uh, worried uh, knowing that and to make sure because if you wasted your time, luckily she called beforehand and actually read the agent remarks, which most agents oh. don't do. Right. And because uh, I put in that listing that like this house is not FHA financial until this date. And that's what prompted her to call. So they, she saved herself the time and her client's headache of driving out there loving the house just to find out like, hey, putting in the offer together be like, oh, I'm sorry, this doesn't qualify. Yeah. Like, I know you love the house, but they haven't owned it long enough. Yeah. So, so I mean, th those are some big items that it's not just price, right? Just because somebody's submitting a high price, it doesn't mean that that's what you're going to go for. You got to make sure because it, it could still be conventional. Like, we had one that was conventional, it was a high price, but they're like, while we are very confident it's going to appraise, we are not willing to waive the appraisal. It's like, Okay. <laughs> well, it's also one of the things like it was an FHA offer. So like, oh, I have no, I have full confidence it's going to, it's going to appraise. And I just, my response, our response was like, 
BS. Yeah. It's like, I'm not confident. I'm the son. Yeah. I've been doing this for a number, like six years. Like I know it could, there's a great chance of this marketed today. I don't think you could find a comp for 240 that would justify the price of that house. Right. It's like, and that's our risk. And then that's one of the things we were waiting on is we were calling some of the other agents. There was like two or three properties that were like, if those close at prices higher than what they're listed for good terms and stuff, like, I have a confidence that we will price far higher than two thirty right. because we were larger or we were in uh, superior conditions compared to because we were fully updated and they weren't. So it's kind of like, where is your prices going to come in? And when they say, oh, we accepted two twenty, but are doing concessions, it's like, oh, okay, never mind then. That like that's not worth it. I'm going to take my the guarantee and, of the appraisal waiver. Yeah, and then another thing that I've been seeing too is if you're an agent that's representing buyers, we've been seeing buyers submit multiple offers to multiple houses mm -hmm. at the same time. Yep. Right? Where they're they're just submitting offers. They're pretty much doing what we used to do when we used to uh wholesale or buy off the MLS is that you submit offers to pretty much every house out in the market, you know, and see which one comes back and then you start moving on that one. So now buyers are doing that same strategy because you just got to submit like that property. They submitted an offer, you know, as soon as you say, hey, you're in the running, all of a sudden now they go see the house. So they hadn't even yeah. laid eyes on it. So this is why. But it, it actually, it, that actually turned out to be a determining factor why we didn't accept their offer though too. Yeah. Oh, 100%. It, it matters, right? Because it's like, if you haven't even seen the house. Well, no, I'm saying like they did go see the house, but they had the offer we accepted. We had two equal offers, 100% equal offers. I mean, every down every term and everything. But I went with the offer that went to the house first. Right. That and actually contacted us and actually saw it. It's like, well, you were just blasting offers to everybody. The, what what uh, not, had no other way to determine like they're equal offers. So it's like I I don't know, but like, well, this agent actually was more communicative yeah. and seems to fight and be really trying to get this for their client. Exactly. And so it's like, okay, so we went with them. Well, it's exactly that. If they haven't even gone to see the house, and you go ahead and accept the offer, then they go see the house and they change their mind or whatever. Well, like, one I mean, thing that's happening a lot now is people are using that. You, so by contractual law, you have three days to get your earnest money and option money to the title company. Mm -hmm. Well, a lot of people are using those three days as their op as additional option period and not even submitting their option or earnest money to the title company and then backing out of the contract and not submitting it at all because they, they don't think like, is that seller really going to come after me for a hundred dollars right. or something like that or $50, whatever their option period is. Cause I mean, that happened to us once, like somebody Saw the house, highest offer, we accepted the contract, and then they backed out on day three and are like, oh, but they're going to send mail you their option money. Sure they are. Yeah. And they might, but it's also, but it's like, hey, in today's market for a hundred dollars to be throwing contracts out everywhere, it's almost worth it. Right. Where it's like, I need to get a house. So I'm going to start sending blind offers and use that addition, that option period as my time frame to say like, even if I win the contract, I'm going to go see that house. Cost me 250 bucks, especially if they're in a good cash position. It doesn't happen in the sub- 200 price point mm -hmm. at all because usually they don't have the money to do that kind of stuff right um but i could very easily see that happening in these higher price points of like three four five six seven hundred thousand where if you're buying a seven hundred thousand dollar house you're not living paycheck to paycheck so and then the next thing is also when you're having multiple offers and you are having a lot of offers that are kind of apples to apples and everything wouldn't you say that it's probably start negotiating maybe the buyer's agent fee at this point, maybe instead of doing a full 3%, you'd negotiate, be like, look, I have a lot of offers. If you're willing to drop your, your, you know, agent fee down to maybe 2%. 
we'll go ahead and go with yours. I mean, well, I see some agents already doing that on the initial right. contract where it's like, hey, I know you have it in there for 3%, but I'm willing to take down 2% on my commission to get my buyers in there because that's the other aspect of it too, to where if your buyer's capped on a mortgage, and like, hey, their max is $250,000. That's the best they can put forward. But I'm going to go ahead and lower my commission from 3% down to 2% because that's going to net the seller more money. And I have 250000 that's $2,500 or additional dollars that are guaranteed cash right. to them to where it's like, hey, now that makes a more a better offer for them to where I think it's smart from a buyer's perspective to where not be like, oh, I just want my 3%. Like, your job is to get your client that house. To where if you're in a competitive market, go in saying, calling those agents. Like, that's what I would do is like call those agents like, hey, I'm submitting an offer. I'm actually going to lower my commission to net your client more money to put my buyer in a better position because they're kind of maxed out on them. This is the max they can do on the loan value. I'm willing to take less of a money because it's also one of the things we talk about. Like, do you want 100% of zero or do you want 50% of 50? This kind of thing is where like yeah. that might be the determining factor. And it's also like we tell you, like if you can win over the other agent, you're you're in a much better position to win that contract. Like if I'm representing somebody, which I don't do very often, but when I do, it's like I do call those other agents. I do try to fill out that agent to say like, if you're talking to eight, nine, ten different agents, I want you to remember me. Right. Uh, or like you're looking at eight, nine offers. I want you when you roll across my name for that buyer, like oh yeah, they did call me because now I come to front of their mind. That might be that determining factor if you have two equal contracts to like i actually talked to this guy and i like this guy because from the agent perspective i don't have to work with you for the next 30 days yeah. through the option through the inspections through the appraisals and if i can see a good working relationship it's like i do i want to gamble with this other person or do i want to go with this, the person i've already talked to and contractually they're equal people where that's how it gets it done well, and then one of the things that you do a lot and this is why like we said a lot of the agents out there are trash but a good agent is definitely worth the money. You know what I mean? Because the amount of work, the amount of things that they're going to do, the amount of headache they're going to save you is going to be tremendous. And one of the things that I know that you do consistently with agents is not just make sure they remember you, but you go a little bit above and beyond to help them with whatever they may not be understanding. Maybe they need a contractor, maybe they need something, and you just go ahead and go above that little extra effort that now puts you way above any it other does. agent they're oh, talking sure. to. And it's like, man, but you know, this guy really helped me out. This guy was really nice. He he helped he taught me this. I didn't even know that was a thing, or he helped yeah. me here. So it as an agent, either you're in either side, like it matters that you're a good agent and that you take the time. Like that agent that didn't know about the FHA rule. It's like, how are you an agent representing an FHA buyer? And you don't know about the guidelines for FHA. And it, and it could be one of those things that it's like, maybe they were brand new. It was the first buyer. But, but they don't, when, I, when, I, when we got in real estate, I didn't know that was a thing. But you weren't representing buyers. I was representing ourselves. Yeah. And, and, but it was one of the things like, I, until somebody told me about it, I had no idea. But I give, oh, I give that agent uh, a kudos to the fact that they called and asked why yes. not not saying oh it's not FHA financial I don't know why but let's go on to something else it must be foundation problems right. or something because that's what she called and asked originally was like does it have foundation problems does it have some kind of issue uh, like what's why can't it go to financing until a certain date and then that's when I told her about it and she learned so yeah. like, I give I props to that agent for the fact that she called and asked because it, it's one of those that if it's your first 
transaction, your first buyer, and the first thing you did was call and ask, like, I have a your future looks bright versus mm-hmm. somebody that's in it just for the money and then just goes after and and, and that's a things. good point right like you the agent they didn't know but at least is willing to learn is willing to mm-hmm. do the research and that is something that you know it's lacking with a lot of people they're just in it for that commission in it for the money so with that being said when you're in a multiple offer situation and I hope this has helped you is understanding all of the variables that you got to look at This is why you just don't go with the cheapest agent, why you don't go with the highest offer. Like if you don't know your stuff, you want to make sure you're working with somebody that does because these situations can be very problematic, could end up costing you a ton more money, could end up costing you the sell of the house, you know, and it's something that you must, must understand when you're doing this. We're dealing this every single day, every time we put a property on the market, whether it's for listing or uh, a lease property, and you gotta uh, you gotta evaluate everything. It's not just who's willing to pay for it, because right now, who's willing to pay for it? Everybody. Go to the next level. What are the terms? What are the concessions? What are the repairs? What are my chances? You know, calling the, the agents, agent, call, seeing call the, the other off, pendings. Call the loan officer, look at the term sheet yes. of the loans. How long like, is it gonna take to close on this one? Oh. It taking this long. Is there any potential problems that could cost them to back out if it takes longer, right? I mean, the market's shifting so quickly. You probably don't want to be waiting for them to close for two months. You know what I mean? Because or the same when there's offers like contingent on the the sale of their other house. It's like those are things you gotta evaluate. If it's contingent on the sale of another house, like in this market, you definitely it's like, screw that, I'm not taking that shit. But in the previous market, we've considered those. Or it's well, like, yeah, it's contingent. Well, okay, well, your other house, does it have an offer? Is it listed correctly? We call that agent. Like, what price is it listed? Does that make sense? Are they going to get an offer? Do they have an offer? Where along? What is, it, what is the status of your loan? Yeah. Uh, or the, their buyer's loan? Because, I mean, you're all wrapped into that entire transaction together at that point. Right. So it's something that you got to be very wary with doing that. Because even though, yeah, they put earnest money down, but sometimes it's still easier to walk away from a couple thousand dollars than, you know, to actually follow through with a purchase of a home, right? So you got to be careful. You got to pay attention and you got to understand there's more to multiple offer situations. So, and like I've said before, guys, if you want more tips like this in real time, then you got to make sure you text us and text CWTJ, that's Coffee with the Johns, to 210-794-9898, where we share this stuff Every day, every week, we're always putting stuff out. So let's shift gears a little bit. And I, I'm very curious as to hear this article that you have on here on uh, on the tsunami that's hitting. There's a tsunami hitting America. Watch out, everybody. <laughs> so the title of the article, and it's something that I didn't even think about until I saw this article. And then I read it. And I'm like, Yeah, that is a uh, real problem. So experts say a turnover tsunami could be on the horizon as pandemic uncertainly subsides. And this is done by the San Antonio Business Journal. Uh, So as the economic recovery continues and companies craft their return to work plans, experts and surveys show businesses need to be prepared for another potential disruption, a potential surge in turnover. And because from the article, from the top of the article, I was like, 
Uh, what do you mean by turnover tsunami? I don't know. But then this is a potential surge in turnover from a business perspective really has got the gears turned. According to a survey by insurance and financial service provider Prudential Financial, 26% of workers plan to look for a job with a different employer once the threat of the pandemic decreases. Considering the circumstances, they are likely to have plenty wait, of wait, options. Wait, 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 wait. Kim, turn off the, the feed, please. Shut, <laughs> shut down the feed. All right, continue. <laughs> Considering the circumstances, they are likely to have plenty of options. Labor shortages are gripping numerous industries. A trend experts say is likely to lead companies to offer lucrative pay incentives to lure talent. Think Uber offering $2,500 to get people just to come drive for them. A survey by Chicago-based Element Global Services found it, it would take just a 15% raise for 49% of workers to change jobs. That, to me, was like... That's oh not much. my God. So if you're making 50,000 a year, you're talking half of workers would leave their jobs for and go off into the uncertainty for 57,500 or $7,500 more a year in pay, not even a thousand dollars a month. They're ready to take the uncertainty and job jump to a new job. But, but when you think about it and you think about the inflation that people are seeing, the uptick in grocery bills and everything, it's, the extra seventy five hundred, like you're saying, the extra what's that? What's what's that a month? Like eight hundred around there. Sure. But, but yeah, I mean, that, it'd be less than that. It'd, it'd be, be like seven six six. It'd be seventy two hundred. Be six hundred a month. Yeah. So six an extra six hundred a month to some people, it's like shit. That's an extra six hundred dollars a month. That's you know probably take care of the increase on my uh, grocery bill. That would probably. You know, take care of my the the mortgage that of my forbearance that I got to catch up yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but um, the tour and it's also kind of one of things like, wow, how good are businesses doing when half your employees will leave for only fifteen percent? So that's one of the things they talk about in this article. I didn't do all the uh, steps and stuff like that, but according to Prudential survey, forty-two percent of workers who plan to leave their current employer would give their employer a C or lower for efforts to maintain culture during the pandemic. That was another big thing to where it's to maintain like, culture that maintain their culture during the pandemic to all the stuff they were doing with the zoom meetings and all these accommodations that like people hated it. They didn't like it. C or lower for that many companies across the nation. like 42% of workforces was like, yeah, I didn't like the way my company handled that. Like they didn't what, do a good wait, job. They didn't, they didn't like working from home. That maintain the culture of the company, whatever culture they were trying to create from with this new work from home platforms, the socials that they so tried the, to do. They didn't like, like the new culture that they were trying to make or make or the maintain, to adapt to the pandemic. Yeah, they're maintaining the culture. Gotcha. So it was quite a long article, but they said some of the stuff that they could do. It was um what was her name? Uh she worked for a big global firm that uh worked some placing jobs. And some of the things they're saying like yeah, kind of like a headhunter kind of place. Um, so they have a lot of companies reaching out to them saying, hey, we need workforce, we need workforce, we need workforce. And they're talking with employers and employees, and they're like, yeah, I'm looking for a new job. So they're seeing this huge wave, and they're like predicting like this is as these industries come back in line, especially like the hardest hit industries, like hospitality, to where like I know there's a huge issue um, because my girlfriend's in the hospitality industry. and Sucker. Now, because like six months ago, jobs were scarce. Yeah. Nothing was coming on. It was very depressing looking at it. I was like, God, there's nothing good coming on. But now all of a sudden, as things are ramping back up, things are opening back up. It's like job, 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 job. And it's like they're well, going to start even, really bidding for it, each other. Right. And it's just that, right? Like all the jobs that are available 
out there now. Now, it, this is what we talk about so many times about when the government tries to step in and force shit, why it upsets us. Because it's like, if you leave the free market alone, it adjusts much quicker than the government can implement, right? The government want to implement minimum wage of $15 by 2025. We are hitting that this year, almost across the board. You understand? So it's like, you're seeing that right now because the free market is adapting to this because they're saying like, holy shit, we have a high demand for our product and we have nobody working. Well, we got to pay more yeah. so we can get people in here so we can sell a product or if not, we are going out of business. Yeah. So, I mean, some of the stuff that they recommend companies do is like reimagine your workspace. So many businesses are choosing a hybrid model that includes work from home options. Many experts say that is becoming the expectation for job seekers and existing employees. So companies that choose to deviate from that model could be putting themselves at a risk for a higher turnover. So mm -hmm. there's going to be a lot of pressure on business leaders to create a whole new culture of work to keep people coming to their jobs or stay at their jobs. Cause I know a lot of people say they, well, I kind of like this work from home model. Right. Um, I mean, employers don't like it because it sees that it hits their bottom line, but employees like it. So now you have these two huge, cause I mean, we had that article from Jamie Dimon last year that says we're done with this work from home model. We directly affected point proven lost business because our people didn't show up and try to do uh, virtual, virtual meetings and things like that. So that is a huge uh, disincentive to where like they're going to have to adapt to these things and figure out the way these things can work. Uh, another thing that they can do is reassess your benefits. And that comes to pay, that comes to maternity leave, that comes to career mobility, vacations, all of those things. Because I mean, you have to like, it's there's so much more to a job than just like, you give me time, I give you money. There, it's the things we talk about, the culture. Do you like working there? Do you like the benefit package of flexibility you do have? So mm -hmm. all of those things, because I mean, think about where the economy was when we head into this. We were at historically low employment numbers right. where you were already seeing that aspect of uh, employers having to fight to do this, but everyone's employed. Mm -hmm. But now when you have this massive unemployment spike and you just have this massive disruption, why it's good for the economy to have these huge disruptions is now it seems like the puck's kind of moving back into the employee's uh, standard. So now you had all these unemployments and you have a huge opportunity for businesses yeah. and they're like, we need to hire up. Well, how do we hire up to grasp these opportunities? Like we have to massively readjust because there's this employment pool that we can go after now and we can offer these benefits and really change our culture and our structure because now everything because we had this conversation why you were excited about um facebook doing the new updates mm -hmm. about uh their what was it the changing of the disclosures the, the selling of data and things like the facebook and you're like i'm actually kind of excited about that because we're a small time player we can move and pivot to new strategies a lot faster than what these big players can. So it puts everybody on a whole new playing field and the new market can adjust. So this is kind of what's happening in the employment market right now right. of employers coming in. It's like, hey, everybody's been massively disrupted. Now it's who can move the quickest, the fastest to adjust to hire and attract those biggest uh, employees. And you do it by workspace, work schedules, benefits. And the third one was re rethinking the processes of your business and how your business gets done to say like, yeah, that's how we used to do it. But we need to rethink this for this new model, this new pay structure to keep people where they're at to where I think like the hospitality industry, like what you did before to attract salespeople and to get people to come like now that there's a lot of your people left, it was the same thing with uh, that happened in real estate after 2008 that agent, the number of agents went from 
what I can't remember what it was, but the number of agents dropped in half across the entire country. So when the market came back online around 2012, 13, 14, 15, they had to do a lot of things to incentivize agents to come back to the industry to where it made it. Cause I look now, like when I got my license, it was, it was extremely easy comparative to what it is today. Well, you cheated your way through it. I did not cheat my way through it. uh, Whatever. (laughs) I just took statistics (laughs) in the back knowing if I took the test enough times, I would eventually pass the thing. Um, (laughs) But it is one of those that uh, those barriers of entry they had to lower them. So now you have these industries that you need to attract people back to your industry because you have a massive demand of people that have cash. The weddings, the events, the corporates wanting to people wanting to get out and socialize and do the fun things that they used to do. Well, and especially now, like like places like Texas, right? One, we're pretty much like the number one economy. We're, we're the number one place where people have been moving to. All these things, and. What is it? Starting June 5th, I believe it was, uh, Abbott pretty much said like, hey, no government building, nothing can uh, require masks anymore, right? Masks are done. All this is done. Everything is open. So now Texas is going 100% open, no masks, no nothing. We're back to normal. I mean, now event spaces, all those places like that, they're going to be through the roof. And And my question to you, I guess, in this is... Are companies lowering the skills people need to get to get those jobs now? Because there's uh, this is this is what I'm seeing, right? As you're talking about this, I'm seeing that you have people that before weren't moving so much in the job market because they had a job, and it's it's always that fear of like, well, if I leave. What if I don't find something else? I already mm-hmm. know this one. I'm, uh, you know, I'm somewhat comfortable here, whatever. Where they were forced out, and now it's like, well, now I have all these options. Yeah. Well, that's where I was saying, like now, like the but the skill the, sets isn't necessarily there. Well, that's what I said. But now the puck is in the employees, where the employer has to gamble on is this a good hire or not? Because before, when the pre the pre pandemic, when there's ultra low interest rates, it was that. It's like I have this job. I don't know if I want to try to leave somewhere else and try to, because I, I know I know I'm secure here, but going to a new job, am I going to fit into that culture? Am I going to fit in over there? Right. And so now the is an employer's kind of a power of like, well, we have we need you, but we don't need you that bad to where we have the job, we have the expansions, but we can be a little more cautious in our hiring because they're trying to just expand. Well, now everything's trying to recover and take advantage of all these new businesses and the employees are sitting on the sidelines and they have massive openings where you, everything's been shook up to where and now it's an employee. So that same person's like, I have options. I can go interview. I can now spend time interviewing more of these companies to see which one I like and see which benefit package they want because they have the time, they have the cash to sit on the sidelines and kind of wait, wait and see what comes out, especially in some of these these hard hit industries like the hospitality, leisure and travel bars, restaurants and things like that where it's like they now are like, we're trying to recover. We will give the moon to get people just to come work. And if we don't like them, boom, fire them, get them out. Let's get a new one in. And because they need to That's what I think too, even though they're willing to pay more because they're willing to pay more. Now they also have a lot more options too. I I think because there are so many people in the workforce. And if you can create a company that's maybe a fun culture to be around, now you're paying more and you have a good culture. I think you could demand, you know, the people that you want as well. So, I mean, I I think it's a interesting dynamic about, you know, this turnover tsunami, like which companies are we going to see the highest turnover in, you know, like what I'm, I'm curious because even pre pandemic, we already saw 
like the the low amount of employees at Home Depot at Lowe's. It got to a point where it's like, I need help. I can't even find somebody. I will walk like three or four aisles, and they're not small. And it's like I can't freaking find anybody here. You know that yeah. that, that I can get if you. I heard I never go in, but like I heard in Walmart, it's been the same thing pre-pandemic, right? So you look at all these pe- all these jobs and all these things that already had low employment yeah. employees. Like, what's the next turnover? Well, but I mean, a lot of that stuff's being offset by technology to now to where like you go to Home Depot and Lowe's. If you have their app, you walk in and you open yeah. the app. It'll automatically sync to the store you're at, and then you type in what you're looking for, and it'll tell you aisle and uh, bay that those things are in. And it's like, that's freaking awesome. So as long as you know how to describe what it is you're looking for, you're not, I'm looking for this thing that does that. Like, okay, the app's not going to help you there. Uh, but if you're saying like, hey, where do I go find uh, magnets? Where do I go find washers, screws, these tools, these, these materials? Yeah. It'll tell you where. And a lot of times, like, they pull up a map even. Like, this is the layout of this store, and it's right there. Yep. Have you seen the, the, the strikes on McDonald's? The uh, jobs, is, is it called strikes? Um, uh, a bunch of people are just like, and I don't know how many cities uh, are doing a strike against okay. McDonald's because they want McDonald's to go up to $15 minimum wage. Yeah. And McDonald's is not doing it. I'm like, McDonald's is, I'm surprised it's taking this long, but like McDonald's is definitely one of those companies, McDonald's, Burger King, all of those that can essentially run the whole place with probably one person. Yeah. You know what I mean? Where it's like, you keep, Pushing McDonald's. All McDonald's that person does, say, he's a computer programmer. <laughs> he just goes in and fixes machines. Yeah, you just have a, a guy on their computer, and, and if that's the case, they could probably be working on these things from their, from his house. Yeah. Right? So it's like, you. Uh, I've been seeing that too, and it's like all those jobs, that's where you're going to be seeing even more inflation because it's like, well, if we're paying more money for you guys, we got to charge that difference. You know what I mean? Prices are going to have to go up. People are going to pay more, which causes more inflation, which causes people to want to get paid more to keep up. So, I mean, it's kind of like a very, you know, this this circle that just keeps going. Reinforcing circle. Yeah, but that's where I feel like the government cannot step in because they will slow that down. Where the free market can adjust so much faster to this than if the government comes in with policies trying to force things, then now those policies are probably going to prohibit the the market from adjusting to it you know what i mean so i think it's uh it's one of those things that's well, like i mean to move it into the next article like one of them being the enhanced unemployment benefits that have been out there that you talked about last week that right. you said nine states were opting out up to that point well that nine has now jumped to 22 states that are opting out of the federal unemployment benefits texas being one of them so governor abbott announces end of bonus federal COVID-19 unemployment benefits in Texas. The state of Texas will opt out of the 300 weekly federal unemployment benefits available throughout the pandemic, Governor Abbott announced on Monday this week. According to the Texas Workforce Commission, the number of job openings in Texas is almost identical to the number of Texans who are receiving unemployment benefits, he stated. According to the Texas Workforce Commission, the number of unemployment claims is roughly equivalent to the number of job postings in the state. Among those job postings, nearly half Half of them offer wages above fifteen fifty per hour, which they're pushing for the fifteen dollar minimum wage, and three quarters of them offer wages above eleven fifty an hour. So there's work out there at this fifteen. I mean, half of them are up there. That assessment, Ab- Abbott added 
does not include the vol- voluminous jobs that typically are not listed, like construction and restaurant jobs. So they're saying like the jobs that are listed out there, like are equal that doesn't include jobs that usually don't list those and that's like in construction and restaurant jobs they usually they put the signs out for traffic they put them on the trucks i know when i was working for a company out of college they put on all their company vehicles they put we're hiring magnets on their their trucks because mm-hmm. they would drive up to construction sites and all of those construction workers like well that person's hiring over there is a great way to uh, right, we're not work. poaching your guys I, they just called me yeah, they called me i don't know what to tell you. i don't know where they get it slick. um and in fact there are nearly 60 percent more jobs open and listed in texas today than there was in february 2020 the month before the pandemic 60 percent more jobs before the pandemic that's crazy so you look at like texas is ready to boom it's like there's 60 percent so more jobs more jobs including the jobs that have been lost or Pre-pandemic, there was X number of jobs. Now there's those so jobs plus, plus six. So you say jobs. like in February 2020, there was 100 jobs. Yeah. 100,000 jobs in Texas. Now there's 160,000 jobs posted. For well, work. I mean, you look at all these massive companies that are coming down and all, all these oh, new yeah. businesses. Oh, like yeah. Like Hewlett Packard is not a company that employs 100,000 uh, people. Well, I mean, the smallest companies that are moving here are, are talking about employing like six, 800 people. So it's like. Man, that's crazy. That's crazy. But one of the things that you said in your article that I, I piggybacked off this is uh, Bernie Sanders. I can't remember. He's in charge of one of those committees that's dealing uh, with finance. Department of Labor. Department of Labor? Does that okay. make sense? Okay, that's a big one. Yep. Um, he's And I can't remember his quote, but he came in with his definite, like, it is the federal government's job to step in and make sure that the people get this money. And we're going to step in and do this for them. And we're going to make sure they still get $300, even if the Republicans don't want to give it to them. Turns out they can't. The Biden administration has scrambled to devise a way to keep paying heightened unemployment benefits to an an estimated 3.6 million Americans who stand to lose them soon in Republican-led states. But Labor Department's officials have come to believe that the law does not allow them to do so. Hmm. With a federal intervention now unlikely, jobless Americans in at least 22 states, including Arizona, Ohio, and Texas, are set to see their payments fall by $300 each week or wiped out entirely as GOP governors try to force people back to work in response to potential national labor. I like this, the potential national labor shortage. Um, when there's potential? 60, yeah, when there's 60% more jobs and an equivalent of jobless to job postings, not including these other ones, I don't think it's a potential labor shortage. I think it is a labor shortage because it, one of the things with these, that's your opinion, John. It, it is my opinion. Yes. Um, <laughs> but you look at uh, like why some people might lose their, benefits entirely as if you're self-employed or a gig worker you traditionally before 2020 were not eligible for unemployment benefits but covid uh relief and everything allowed for that but now that these states are opting out of the coronavirus um, stimulus packages and benefits it waives those so now those people are going to lose them entirely so now it's like you got to go out and find work it's not that you can work on a side hustle and also make an extra $2,000 $2,000 a month on unemployment benefits. It's like, nope, that's being cut off. So either your side hustle needs to become your hustle or you need to go back to work and you need to find something and still work on this on the side. Right. You can't just hang out on the sidelines and play on creating TikTok videos, trying to make it big there and still whoa, have some, is a income. You know, TikTok has been good for us. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. It's not knock on TikTok. Okay. What do you want? To, the, the Instagram? There you go. No, Facebook. No, Facebook. Snapchat. 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 There you go. Snapchat. Snapchat. Become Snapchat Stupid famous. platform. 
<laughs> well, hey, they did cross 500 million active users. I did see that. Yeah, eventually. Yeah, whatever. So the young audience just left. <laughs> They're gone. Um, but it is something that, uh, I mean, these states, like, I mean, 22 yeah. states that were like, that's almost half the country. So you only got 28 that are still maintaining these things. And that's a huge jump from nine to 22 in a week. So, you know, what I find crazy with all of this is how I had an article on here. I've read it, but it's just, um, it's right now speculation, but like it's not going anywhere just yet. But you already have, uh, it, even the article said it, this is not me saying it, that all Democrats are pushing for another stimulus. But the next stimulus, they want it to be a $2,000 a month stimulus until the pandemic ends. To who? To the people that need it. You know, so $2,000 a month stimulus till the pandemic ends. <laughs> First of all, what who's defines? Yeah, who's going to determine that the pandemic ended, right? Because if we look at what we talked about this before, the Federal Reserve is pushing what they considered to be the guidelines for economic prosperity and everything. They're like, don't focus on unemployment. That's not what we're worried about. We're worried about inclusive it, em employment of minorities. Yeah. So it's not even the unemployment rate. Now you're talking about how many minorities are employed overall. That's the metric that they're using, right? Then don't worry about the money supply. That doesn't matter. So printing galore, right? And that's what they've been doing. So they're moving the gauges because if you look at all that, when you look at current unemployment, you look at how many jobs are available, you look at the wages that are going up, you look at everything is opening, people are spending, people are going out, people are traveling, people are doing all the things. How are we not recovered yet? based on just those those numbers, right? Like, how is it that we're not in a recovery yet? So you look at all those things and you look at why is it that you're trying to push for yet another stimulus? Like, I don't understand. Like, for what purpose? I, and I just, I just can't see. And I'm, and I'm not trying to be, like, I, I'm honestly, like, even you guys listening and everything, like, I'm not judging. I'm honestly trying to understand. What data are you looking at that makes you think that we need a $2,000 a month stimulus until the pandemic ends. I'm seeing like just this, Texas alone, 60% more jobs than pre-pandemic levels. There's jobs. The state is opening but up. The, the, Vaccines are going through the roof. Everybody's getting vaccinated. Everybody can be going out. So it's like the jobs are there. Income is there. Everything is there. Money's there now. What's, what, what are we and The only thing I doing? think of is like this is being pushed by... Not the majority of the Demo Democrats are the ones pushing this, obviously, because yeah, GOP yeah. is like cutting off the unemployment. Well, they had a, um, they had a, so this was based on um, uh, a petition that was signed by over 2 million people saying that they want, they want and need another stimulus. So it was well, a that's petition. what happens when you give people free money is they get dependent on that free money. Exactly. So we're like, I think this is coming from your further left than left center left kind I of agree. democratic because i know like um what's his face schumer has one been pushed for like if we need another force him we'll do it it's like well you also live in new york where that i could see people trying to make cases for that because that's a state that you came from there that like 
it's very its population is dependent on the government they're very tied in with government regulations and uh handouts benefit programs to where like yeah. you have a very generous um towards uh lower income people to where you have more rent assistance you have more programs you don't, have more don't things. start talking shit about new yorkers because you're making me uncomfortable right now <laughs> but it's just like uh, why why they need an extra stimulus is like i i don't see this like this coming to fruition unless more the uh, things turn south because you do have uh steve well not steve mnuchin that's the old guy uh what's his own pal no the senator from west virginia that's like got the most power in he's a democrat but he's like center left democrat oh, he's the one that made yeah, him drop yeah. the unemployment down like there's one democrat that is like uh well, i think uh, even like he's a more of a moderate so sorry to get politicals with all you people that get very sensitive about politics uh, but that's one thing I think it's I've seen personally is I know we have a lot of friends that are Democrats and even they are telling us it's like, yeah, that's that's too much. You yeah. know what I mean? So it's like I, I don't think it's like a Democrat Majority, thing. Yeah. I think it's like the way left. It's, Democrats it's, it's are like, left of left. Kind yeah, of. because the, a lot of the Democrats that we know, like they they're like, no, they can't do that. No, that doesn't make sense. Yeah, and that's I'm what like, I said, like, okay. where this is coming from. I think it's more the states that have those kind of mentalities that like and it's like this is more more dependency california the, new york yeah stuff like that. yeah the states that are notorious for doing yeah. these things because i mean we talked about last week california is providing another stimulus to their people already $600, another yep. 600 stimulus to people to everybody yep. um and because and this is still not accounting for already the child uh credit that they're doing the the new child uh the um, the distribution of money that they're going to be sending out starting i believe the 15th of July, if I'm not mistaken, it's going to be like 300 for any kid that you have under six and 250 for any kid that you have from six to 17 every month. You're getting for how long? Uh, shit. I think it was December, still December. Wow. For every month, you're going to be getting pretty much that extra 250, 300 per child. Um, that's what, those things are already in place. And then you look at Biden's infrastructure plan, right? And there's more stuff. There's another, like, I think uh, they want to make the tax save, the tax child credit over two grand, I think. And they want that, like, for good. You know what I mean? So, I mean, and uh, again, I'm not arguing with those things being good or bad. What I'm saying is, like, all that money is already coming in. Yeah. Why another stimulus? Yeah, I don't understand. I'm just curious. Like, and, I'm and really I mean, curious. That's what I said. Like, you're always going to have the people that just want everything for free. Yeah. Uh, that that every society, so two million people out of a country, three hundred fifty million people, or three thirty, whatever it is, it it doesn't surprise me that there are people out there, and there are some senators and some House representative people that do represent people out of those districts that are going to try to push for it because that's how they keep their jobs is they have to get elected, so they have to listen to their constituents from their districts and try to do no, those things. And, and, I, and so, I understand why politicians are doing it. I'm just curious as to like, you know. Like, like, can we look at data? Can we look at stuff to justify saying, like, I understand that you're a politician, but it's kind of like, I look at politicians or, or like being a politician, like you're a, you're a parent, right? And the, your constituents are your kids. Like, sometimes no. you got to force them to eat their no. vegetables. No, because your parent, <laughs> you can't, you can't vote for new parents. So if they don't. Can't you though? <laughs> they, Just they. Just kidding, uh, mommy. They, uh. 
they vote in the people that tell them they're going to fight for what they want. So you look but at there, like AOC right now. Like if she'd started, like I'm sure their district is somebody that's trying to push for these things mm -hmm. to where if she comes out and tells all of the people that vote for her, no, we're not going to do that. Come next election, then they won't vote for her because somebody else is going to oppose her saying, I'll give you that. I'll fight to give you that kind of stuff. And they win votes. So they have to no, listen no, no. to who but their people are. What I'm what saying is, yes, I agree. I agree. That's how it works. What I'm saying is that it should be more like that. Like a politician should be like, I get you guys want that, but that is not good for you or for the country long term. But then now you have the government turning in, telling the people what to do. So the people telling We're what the government to do. We're already having that. I mean, but we, that's, we already we seen do, that. We do, but we I'm just don't saying at least do thing. it the right way. Yeah, but that's just saying you can't. You'll you'll lose your your supporter base that yeah, way, and then you'll have you'll lose money and everything to where it's. But like, yeah, we had a comment from Rod Roddy, um, say work from home mostly sucks. Less accountable employees, too many distractions at home, etc. And that's the problem. Like that's why like that's why people like working from home is yeah. the fact they're like, hey, I can do laundry, I can eat lunch, I can go to the grocery store for thirty minutes and come back and get work because nobody knows what I'm doing. And that's it why is, employers yeah. hate it. It's like. I don't know what you're doing. Like, there's times where, like, hey, if you're not busy and I'm paying you to be busy, I'm gonna give you something else. Cause I remember when I would do an internships and like, if you weren't busy, like, oh, go clean boxes or something like that. Like, they made you go do like the most worst tasks right. because you're being paid to be there. And it's like you found something to do. You're like, I need to act busy because I don't want to do something. But if you're at home, they don't know that. They can't give you tasks, and you're obviously not gonna go tell them that. And it's so you go. Well, I mean, and I notice it for us, like we have uh, all of our the people that work for us, they they work from home. And that's one of the things that like it makes it difficult for me where I'm, I'm like, well, what are you working on now? Well, what are you doing now? Right. Because I don't know what the hell you're doing. And there's so much to do that sometimes like I'm not hearing from them or I don't know that I'm trying to put in policies now where it's like I need you to tell me, you know, when you as soon as you clocked in. What are you working on now when you finish that and what are you starting next i need to know what it is that you're doing so we make so i make sure that we are moving forward right yeah. that we are being efficient because it's very hard to do that from home from a yeah. distance and i mean i don't know i mean I, I agree i think uh i i do agree that there's some things that could be done more of a hybrid model but personally I, I do prefer working from an office. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, it's just your mindset shifts. You're in work mode. You get more shit done. When you're home. Well, apparently, for you. For yeah, yeah, like, yeah, no, no, like no, no. Each, each person uh, That's what I'm saying for me. Yeah. Uh, I, you get, I get more work done, right? Then if you're home, like you're saying, well, well, maybe I can just go start a load of laundry. Or, or maybe I could just go do this real quick. Or maybe, you know, and then I'll, I'll let the dogs out. i do this. All those little distractions add up. Mm -hmm. They add up, they cut off your productivity sometimes. Sometimes they cut off from like, you know, you're in a groove or you're getting things done, then you go do and this. And, and that's back to the, the, the previous article, the tsunami aspect of it. It's like, yeah, everything shook up to where employers now have to look like, how do we update our pro system processes to allow employees to do that? But we work can less almost, but yeah. we still stay productive, productive right. on our side. And then it's like, but now you have to keep everything into account of like, well, I could lower pay so I could hire more people, but I can't lower pay too much because then somebody else is going to do that to where it's going to, I think it's going to cost employers to where it's like, you're going to have to really balance this, oh, this yeah. thing it's for employees, to, yeah. especially these big companies that like these big corporate conglomerates that have all this money, your executives make so much money. It's like, they're really going to earn their pay now. Um, 
and uh, Joe Manchin. That's the guy. That's why I was saying Mnuchin. Um, so who we got some comment in there? Who's as an appraiser? Oh. He says, appraiser here, behind the convo, but wanted to chime in. Appraisers can't force repairs to be made. Neither is the appraisal, is a, the home appraisal a home inspection. We have a duty to report the deferred maintenance. It's up to the lender how they would like to proceed. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, right, uh, well, it's right. good to know that it's not the appraiser doing that, but it makes sense that it's the lender saying like, hey, there's the appraiser says, yes, it's got some wood rot, and the FHA is one that's like, well, well we're not I mean, it's the same rot. with the inspector. The inspector's not saying, you know, you can't buy the house if these things are there. They're stating all the problems. The lenders are the ones that are putting the stipulation on whether yeah. the lender they're, orders they're the willing appraisal. to take that or not. Yeah, they order the appraisal, and the appraiser yeah. comes back saying, hey, here's what I think the value is. Here's the conditions. Here's everything. So, uh, Rod H., thank you for clearing that up. Brandon. That, Brandon. So, uh, yeah, we do appreciate you chiming in and uh, reach out. Uh, email me at john, J-O-N, at primehomes.com. I would love to speak to you, maybe have you on the show or something to get your, your feedback and your thoughts on the whole appraisal market. That'd be awesome. I mean, it's have. a huge topic right now with like a lot of people blame, blame appraisals, just yeah. like they blame developers for making houses too high. But it's like, no, they're bound by the laws and the regulations that they have to follow. And the process is like we've talked about. It's, it's, it's more of a art form than a science. Yeah. Um, so unless you have an article that you want to hit, I had a topic that I wanted to no, end with. Go ahead. That kind of, so well, talking about that, right? Everybody is blaming appraisers who or what, is to blame for the current housing prices being where it's at or you know the amount of overbidding uh people being outbid all this who is to blame for that because i hear i always hear people say it's you know these damn appraisers is just they don't know how to appraise so then you know we're not qualifying for these loans or it's these damn investors that are just pushing up the prices the builders all these things, right? All these California buyers that are coming in with so much money. So, like, who do you feel is to blame for such high home prices? Well, the one thing it's easy to blame is to look at the government. So the government, so like they're they're the scapegoat for things because I like it. I look at it as the why are plywood prices, lumber prices so high? It's like everybody's to blame because it's our industry. I think it's but one thing that is saying like I would love I do put a lot more blame on the red tape involved when you said there's damn near a hundred thousand dollars of regulatory burden on a four hundred thousand dollar house and it's not like okay make your money I don't care it's like I just want to speed up like why are is inventory so low builders are saying like we are ready to go like we want to build but we can't it's like because of the processes but the pro the problem with that is is if okay, red tape goes away, housing boom starts starts up. Well, now people with land, they said there's it's hard to find infill lots and land. Well, people with land are like, well, hell, price just went up. I'm gonna adjust my price. So it's gonna take some time to where it's like I think it's everybody's fault to blame for a history of getting us to this point. So there's not one person to blame, but I think you could do some things in the short term. Like, look, okay, uh, zoning requirements. Like, the, what's stopping us on our build right now for six weeks is like. Yeah, that's limiting supply. We are going to waive those and run a pilot to see if that helps speed up allowed inventory. Like the builders are just saying like, we need more inventory, the tariffs aspect of we need more lumber. So if they were lower, lower tariffs, lower red tape, lower, a lot of things that drive prices, you would influx supply that would kind of 
dampen the demand or dampen the demand because now all the people wanting to buy are able to buy. So I think that could do it, but it's, I don't think there's anybody to really blame, but I think there's things that could be done to proactively from a regulatory aspect that could help the market in the short term, um, recover and hopefully that because where it is right now, it's like, it's dropped so low that people don't want to move and that's reinforcing the low supply. And the only way to get the people that want to move out to increase supply is you need to get more demand to the market or more supply to the market to things normalize a little bit to people feel like they have a chance. Like I can sell my house and now I can move into something. So now that, now it kind of balances things out. Like, I think that's the problem. Like, I don't know who created it, but I think the regulation could be cut in order to soften the prices and the inventory level to where the free market comes in and says, okay, instead of doing a $40,000 renovation deal with contracts, all that headache, I can how actually go buy something because there is something to actually buy and I can sell my house and move. So I think that could be something that could be done to help bring it down. Like what caused it? I don't know. I think it's a bunch of different factors and it's all really to blame because it's all our industry, but it's something that I think the regular regulatory bodies could do something to help increase supply and uh, by deregulating a lot of areas and allowing more supply to come to the market to fix the current market, to at least get us somewhere closer to a normal supply of housing. What's your take? I think, uh, the stimulus packages, honestly, I think the, they, overdid it with them they overdid it with the government handouts with the, making it easy you know try to make it where nobody feels any pain nobody feels any discomfort where so many people that didn't need the money still got help still got money you know were able to stay on unemployment were able to not do it. so it made people like have a lot more money than they typically would have which added so many more buyers to the market because now anybody can damn near afford a home because now they found themselves with a shit ton of money. Yeah. So because you look at it and it's just like what you've said before on the market updates and what we see, you know, even the Sabor um, chairperson woman uh, said that we have more sales. We're having more sales than we've had previously. It's just that we're having so much more demand. We need more inventory. So you're having so much more demand because you're having so much more, so many more people that can afford to buy homes. So that means that the stimulus and and don't get me wrong, I'm Monday quarterbacking this thing, right? Because in the moment, they they thought they were doing what what was the best thing, right? And but in hindsight now, it's like, well, you, it was overstimulated. You know what I mean? You put you pump so much money, and like we said, when you pump so much money, you pump up asset prices and yeah. everything. So many people that didn't need the money received money. They yeah. already had money. They already had everything. Now they have even more money. So it's like everybody and anybody can afford well, to get that a house. That is true. That could be one so reason that's driven up. I, I think it's one of those things that's like we just had way too many people be put in a position where they can now move and get houses and bid up houses and have extra cash and have well, savings. Well, that's one thing. Like when liquidity is in the market, it's trying to find places that can get exactly. return. So that's where. So pe- when when people are blaming up. appraisers, investors, and everything, it's like Developers. we we didn't cause this, and we are not perpetuating it either. We're just putting out what the market needs. Yeah, I'm just saying. Like, I listed the house at two twenty. I'm. I guess I'm going to take the two thirty with the appraisal waiver contingency. Why wouldn't? And it's like. I still run a business and I am for profit. It's like I get your situation, but like I'm going to, I still need to think about my business first, or it's not 
my job to take less of a pay cut because the market wants to pay more. Right. So we have a couple of questions in here, uh, yeah. comments that I uh, want to address, like Randy put in here, and I'll be curious to hear Randon's uh, process, because I don't know how new homes are appraised. Because like if you're developing a whole new subdivision and you price at three hundred thousand and the subdivision next door is selling at two hundred, like how does that house appraise for three hundred? Like how does that first home go? Like what creates that? Because he said uh, yesterday's appraisal came in seventeen thousand dollars short on a new home. So I'm curious, like why is that? Is the builder trying to push? Like w- what happens in that new construction? Because that's a space I still don't understand of like how new homes are justified because yeah. a lot of them don't even put them on the MLS and that's when an appraiser uses. So I don't know how that process works. And I would be very curious uh, to know. Then we have um, master Jedi put in here is, are there still areas to buy that you believe will have good appreciation in Austin over the next five to seven years, or has the appreciation leveled out in San Antonio is the better investment. Would you rather buy in Bastrop, Manor, Elgin or New Braunfels at this point in time? My case is, I don't know between Austin and San Antonio. I know San Antonio's market and I've heard about Austin's market where it's one of those that, that what, what's that quote? That which gets hot fast, gets cold even faster to where like Austin's booming right now and and is surpassing San Antonio. But if things shake and go the opposite direction, they go, they go backwards even faster than they went up. So it's one of those, it's a boom bust kind of economy. So you kind of have to play within that realm to where, where I would be buying, if you're looking for peer investment, and you got the cash and the choices and stuff like that. I'd be buying along 35 corridor between Austin and San Antonio, finding those areas that are still cheaper between those two, because you have these two massive employment hubs running in together with the main vein that feeds those two because 35 is it. There's no other highway that feeds into those two business corridors. It's not like we have multiple highways, 281 kind of, but it goes kind of yeah, northeast, Northwest and then has to shoot back to where, I think any, basically anywhere you're talking in the south, I don't know where Maynard and Elgin are. I've heard of them. I'm, I'm assuming they're the Austin area. Uh, I know Bastrop is to the east east, east of Austin. Uh, but I think South Central Texas, if you buy right in the right area, you're going to do good no matter what. I mean, my, my way of looking at it is just look at the probabilities, right? So Austin's been skyrocketing, you mm. know, for... I don't know what the last 10 years like skyrocketing and we've been hearing of people you know overpaying for houses appreciate houses appreciating in like six that's months where, span. that's where you see stuff and, going for like listing 1.1 million selling for 1.4 million yeah Whereas but like, oh it was God. already crazy pre-pandemic right yeah. it was already oh, yeah. nuts so you look at it and you look at also the potential for more development and stuff around austin that's like you, Austin is the city itself is kind of landlocked, right? So you got to go further out and then traffic becomes an issue. All these things become an issue. So the risk reward of I buy in Austin and I'm going to get massive appreciation still, I don't know. Where do I see it more guaranteed is in those tertiary markets outside, right? You Like you're saying, you go further south, you come into San Antonio, because you start looking at these markets, these are the new affordable homes, yeah. the new affordable markets, right? So when you look at an affordable market that's about an hour away from Austin and it's affordable to be here, it, I saw it myself in New York. We were living in the suburbs outside of New York, about an hour and a half from the city. And we went, well, all of a sudden, when the city just got so freaking expensive, our town started appreciating 
drastically yeah. because we were an hour and a half and we have trains over there, which for whatever reason they don't like here, um, that you could take a train from our town into the city for a few dollars and that's it. And now yeah. you for that, that level of income, you're living in an amazing house in the suburbs. So who has a better chance of appreciating? I think it's these markets right now. I would say are, a safer chance yeah. of a, getting safer appreciation right. where you might Less hit risk. big wins of 20 30 40 percent in the short term but it's also one of the things like you're talking about buying for appreciation like yeah that's always we, a speculation it's also speculation where it's really like you need to look at the investment for us like i understand austin you're never going to find something that cash flows if you rent it or if you're buying something for seven hundred thousand dollars you're not renting the thing for four grand a month um more than likely but uh looking at it from that standpoint of like Buy where you think there's going to appreciation, making sure you can maintain that investment. If, hey, you have months of vacancy or you don't, uh, you have repairs, you have issues like that towards like you need to make sure you underwrite the investment, like making sure you can maintain that thing long term for the appreciation. Do I think all these areas are going to appreciate very nicely? Mm -hmm. For sure. But you got to be able to hold on to the investment to be able to do that. So if you're buying cash, no big deal. But if you're leveraging, you need to make sure that you can maintain that thing where you don't get into the point where like, crap, I need to force sale now because I need cash and this is starting to hurt. So we're like, when you're playing with leverage, it, it can go backwards very, very, very quickly. So that's where I, I would look at it as like saying, hey, it depends on your current situation of where you are cash to where you want to play to where, hey, where, do I think it is you can get higher appreciation in central Austin? For sure. But there's a higher level of risk that comes with that, especially if you're playing with leverage yeah. to where it's like high risk, high return to where San Antonio might be a lower risk, lower return, but it's a lower risk and you can maintain that. So you need to understand how real estate investments work, especially when you're attaching leverage to it and your current financial situation to make sure that you are going to get that return and not have to force sell. Cause that's why you see these big swings in stock markets is why like big investment firms don't want to sell assets. They know are going to go back up, but they get themselves into cash crunches like we need cash so i need to sell things that's why you see these massive drops in the market and then essentially shoot back up because people with cash come back in and buy them once prices have leveled out so that's why a lot of places like you can't get too over leveraged on debt and assets and not have cash to maintain your, and your then, baseline and also on the the problem that you're seeing too i think with investing in austin is that right now perhaps to buy something you're probably already overpaying from its current value by a pretty large amount. So not only did you overpay, but now you got to wait for the values to catch up to what you paid to be at least break even. And then it needs to surpass that. Where yeah. in San Antonio, you might be overpaying, but not by that much. Yeah. And so it's a lot faster to catch up to that overpay that you just did. And then everything after that is going to be more profit. So you're yeah. you're looking at that that risk reward versus you know uh, regarding where you're going to be investing. But I would definitely be investing, like John said, in that 35 corridor. You know, look at l more landlocked places, places that don't have potentially so much land around it. Because as they build new homes, your values are not going to appreciate as quick because you're competing against new homes so you know that's where i see like to a places. certain price point where they're building homes your your new homes are three hundred thousand. you got a neighborhood next door that's 140 it's like 
their gears are going to go up very quickly oh, yeah. to a standpoint because like they just can't build in the 200s anymore. Yeah. And if your house is under 200 and then you have a lot of buyers that can only afford up to 220, yeah, but like, and then that new, will bring yours up very quickly. San Marcos area, I mean, finding a home at those prices, oh, I don't yeah, know no, if you're going to be able to. No. So They're very expensive. You got to keep that in mind as you move forward, man. Uh, keep reaching out. Join our text community. You can ask more, ask us more questions. We'll respond. Uh if you don't know the number, it's 210-794-9898. Um, and with that being said, guys, we will wrap up today's episode. So thank you all for joining us. Hope you got some value. Remember to hit that thumbs up if you got some value. It helps us out a lot. And join us again next Friday, 8 a.m. Texas time. Coffee with the Johns live. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye.